Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. All right, today on Revolution Military Affairs, uh, we have a, an exciting uh, topic that we're going to talk about, and I'll get to in just a moment. Uh, but we have an exciting um, guest that's going to talk about this topic with us. So we've got with us today uh, Lucas Mingelkampf, who is a PhD student at the U- University of Marburg, Germany. He works at the Institute for Peace Research and Security Policy Hamburg on NATO's deterrence and defense strategy as it relates to Russia. He's received his uh, bachelor's and master's degrees in history from the University of Bonn. He holds a PhD scholarship from the Hans Buchler Foundation, uh, participated in the Wilson Center Nuclear History Boot Camp in 2019, and he was a visiting fellow at the Judas Repi Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies at Cornell University from March to May 2022. Now, this is where the, the, the discussion really gets interesting. So his dissertation project focuses on the criticism of deterrence theory and practice by German peace researchers during the Cold War. One of his main areas of interest is the reception, adoption, and ref, uh, reformation of or rejection of uh, U.S. strategic thinking in the 1970s and the 1980s in West Germany. So this is the thing that we're going to talk about. Uh, the the adoption and rejection and or rejection of U.S. strategic thinking in the 1970s and 1980s in West Germany. So with that, Lucas, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to uh, having this conversation with you today. Well, thank you for having me. All right. So I guess the first question, Lucas, is uh, apparently it seems as though the West, the U.S., NATO, uh, and all our friends weren't always religious uh, adherents to the idea of maneuver warfare-oriented strategies for war against the Soviet Union. So why is this the case, and what background information have you found in your research that supports this? Well, I'm not sure if I have a completely satisfying answer yet, 
But if we follow the historian Hugh Strachan, one has to understand the introduction of the operational level of war and maneuver warfare as a counter-reaction to the dominance of nuclear strategy in the Cold War and the civilian strategists that had coined it. Closely connected to this is, of course, also the Vietnam War and the perception that civilian politicians and strategists had interfered way too much uh, in the conduct of the war. Uh, Strachan argues, from my point of view, uh, convincingly that, uh, and I quote him here, it was precisely the attraction of the operational level of war that it was developed in a policy-free zone in which military expertise was unfettered and where armies reasserted their authority over war's conduct, uh, end quote. Uh, and that, of course, was very attractive to every military force in NATO. And in the West German Bundeswehr, the West German armed forces in the early 1980s, uh, one has to, to remember the strongest European conventional force of NATO, ideas of mobile defense were always very strong, of course, already before. And, and on top of that came a very influential narrative unfortunately historical flaw, historically flawed about the German origins of maneuver warfare and its successes in World War II made popular by John Boyd and his uh, followers. So in conclusion, conventional defense and deterrence up until the early 1980s was an afterthought of nuclear strategy and the introduction of the operational level and maneuver warfare kind of helped it escape from this conceptual prison. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it's a. Uh, I, I think you highlight a couple of good points there. One of which is the, the the flaws associated with maneuver warfare's origins, and that it or, or that it originated uh, with the German military, and that it was, you know, what the German army did in uh, you know both world wars later in World War One, but then definitely in World War Two. And so, um, who how. Why, I think, is the better question word I'm looking for. Why is it, do you think, that that, uh, that association has been made between those? Why did guys like John Boyd and others uh, somehow link maneuver warfare and the German military? That's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm mostly uh, building here on, on the great book uh, by uh, Stephen Robinson on, on uh, Boyd. Um, and... Um, I mean, of course, he reconstructs this, how, how Boyd uh, um, relied on Little Hart's uh, presentation of, of the German general's uh, uh, reflection on their behavior and their, their conduct during the war, which was, of course, uh, very self-serving uh, for, the, for the German generals. And, um, and later on, he, he, of course, got the chance to maybe uh, correct his, his uh, thinking, but didn't, even, even though he, he got evidence uh, by, by German generals like von Melantin uh, that, that what he thought the German way of maneuver way of warfare was, wasn't actually what, what they did in World War II. Um, but apparently this... Um, at this time, the narrative was already very, very strong and maybe 
Yeah, there was. It's it's a fascinating situation if you go back and look at that post World War II period when you have uh, Liddell Hart who's trying to legitimize his ideas, right? His indirect approach and um, the the ideas that he had written about before the Second World War. And then you know you see the Germans and I mean actually everybody really um, applying ideas that are similar to those that he wrote about. Um, but then after the fact, he comes along and it seems like he tries to, you know, shoehorn his ideas into how the Germans operated. And he found pliable generals who were German generals who were looking to um, cleanse, uh, if you will, cleanse their their own um, place in history. Right. Um, and saying, hey, look, you know, don't worry about all the other stuff. Look, look at how good I was at this way of fighting. Right. And so it's, uh, you know, and I've mentioned it a couple of times on this podcast because I've, I've read the book and I have the book on my bookshelf, but that the German general speak, you know, is one of those books that Liddell Hart specifically wrote. And I know it's different. It's got a different title in uh, different countries, depending on where it was released. But it's one of those. Uh, it's, it's just an interesting uh, situation where you had this this individual looking to legitimize his ideas. You had this group of people looking to. Uh, whitewash their past, and they they kind of converge in this 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 post World War II narrative about maneuver warfare and the Germans and whatnot. So, yeah, I think that that's really interesting. So, as we as we continue to uh, think about this the, the strategic thinking specifically as it relates to military operations uh, in the post or during that late Cold War period, right, the seventies and eighties, there in you know Central uh, Europe, East Eastern Europe. Um, what problem was it that the U.S. and NATO and allies were looking to solve as it related to the Soviet Union? I think what is really important to understand about NATO's strategy in the Cold War is that the military and political spheres were closely intertwined. A flexible response NATO's official strategy for most of the Cold War was in essence a military political compromise between the United States and the European alliance members, especially Germany. Uh, The US preferred a high nuclear threshold and as long as a conventional phase of fighting as possible to to maximize the possibility of de-escalating the war before it involved the US mainland. Uh, the Europeans on the other side preferred a, a low nuclear threshold. Uh, they did so for, for three reasons. First, they thought this would maximize deterrence and prevent a war in the first place. Uh, second, as the concentration of forces was so high in Central Europe, even a conventional war would be extremely destructive. So what was termed a limited war in the US was especially from a German point of view already an all-out war. Uh, And third, many believed that it would be too expensive to to match the Soviets and their quantitative superiority tank by tank, plane by plane, and so forth. Um, Flexible response was, in that sense, an attempt at papering over these differences for the sake of lines cohesion. It did assume a greater role for conventional defense in a case of war, and in a second step, the use of theater nuclear forces should the conventional defense fail. Um, hopefully, the escalation would be possible then, be before the strategic arsenals would come into play. But 
until the end of the Cold War, uh, there were always debates and disagreements over the length of the conventional phase of defense and when and to what purpose theater nuclear weapons would be used. So the introduction of maneuver and the operational level has to be seen uh, in this context of flexible response as a compromise strategy that was very ambiguous. On the one side, one could argue that this didn't really make um, the development of military doctrine easy. Yeah. On the other side, it, it may have been this murkiness of flexible response that offered room for and inspired developing new ideas about conventional defense, uh, be it maneuver or concepts of the so-called non-offensive defense, area defense, and so on. Um, but uh, I think there's a crucial difference here. Maneuver warfare uh, solved the problem of nuclear escalation by ignoring it. Hmm. The appeal of modeling maneuver warfare on the Wehrmacht, uh, this goes back to your, to your last yeah. question, uh, the, the, the appeal of modeling maneuver warfare on the Wehrmacht in the Second World War also had to do with the fact, I would say, that the Wehrmacht never had to face an enemy who had nuclear weapons. Um, the alternative models of non-offensive defense discussed in the 1980s on the other side were very much fixated on nuclear weapons and the nuclear questions, on the idea to, to discourage uh, nuclear escalation or even make nuclear weapons obsolete in the long term. The, the thing that I find really interesting about what you said, and I guess um, that jumps out at me, is the Europeans had this low nuclear threshold uh, point of view, whereas the, uh, the U.S. had a high nuclear threshold point of view. And, uh, you know, I think that goes to one, one side's fighting on their home turf, you know, theoretically, the other side's fighting on somebody else's home turf. So it's not as big a deal if nuclear thresholds get out of hand, you know. And so it's uh, that, and you know, the comment about, Germany seeing what you know the U.S. was categorizing as a limited war as something much greater than a limited war, you know I think that that's one of the challenges that's often overlooked when we talk about operating with with allies and partners is you know your objectives and your your ways if you will may not necessarily match those of your partner and so you can get some of these discongruences uh, when it comes to working with allies and partners. And so with that, I think uh, another question then I have for you is what alternatives did the West have? So I know you, uh, in terms of military um, methods to, to confront the Soviets, I know you, you, you tangential, tangentially mentioned a few just a moment ago. Um, but, you know, I know when we talked beforehand, you had sent me one, uh, a couple papers. And one of them that I found really interesting was the, uh, I think it was called the spiderweb defense um, so if you would talk about some of the alternatives that uh, other people were coming up with, other states were coming up with during this time. Of course. Um, if one includes the neutral states during the Cold War, uh, that is uh, Switzerland, Austria, Sweden, and Finland, uh, the picture of, of um, approaches uh, to military defense broadens considerably. Um, there were, of course, differences between the neutral states, but all of them had as a point of departure uh, the conventional territorial defense of their uh, respective nation state. Yeah. 
and that didn't change during the 1980s. In all these states, positional defense combined with mobile elements for support or relocation of infantry uh, played a central role. Especially uh, Switzerland and Austria also invested in fortification and barrier systems. Um, con considering the nuclear threat and, and in Austria also a relatively weak air force, uh, these states also focused a lot on concealment and uh, dispersal of important but vulnerable infrastructure such as airports and, and logistics. Um, it is surely not a coincidence that these models of positional defense were developed in the neutral states of Europe during the Cold War. Um, likewise, in the early days of, of the Federal Republic, uh, when it was not already a NATO member, uh, Bogislav von Bonin uh, developed a plan for positional defense of West Germany. Uh, von Bonin was responsible for military planning in the uh, Amt Blank, uh, the informal West German defense ministry before 1955. And von Bonin's plan contrasted strongly with the original plan of the ministry, which envisioned 12 mobile armored divisions uh, for, for forward defense. Um, and von Bonin, on the other side, feared that the original plan would lead to what we term a security dilemma today and would make any hope for the reunification of Germany in the near future impossible. Uh, his positional defense uh, that he developed and, and uh, had, had uh, present, presented to the uh, ministry uh, as an alternative, he, he hoped that this would be effective but non-provocative and uh, support the reunification of Germany as a neutral state. Uh, but in the end, he was actually dismissed uh, because for the West German government under, under Konrad Adenauer at the time, uh, the integration with the West and NATO was uh, more important than reunification. Mm. Uh, so one, one can see a certain connection between the emergence of uh, concepts of positional defense and area defense and the idea of neutrality. In the long run, uh, the neutral states served as uh, incubators for the development of positional defense and inspired some military analysts, strategists, peace researchers, and also some active and former military officers in NATO states to uh, think about potential positional defense models uh, for NATO. And the liveliest debate about these alternative defense models happened in West Germany. But uh, as I said, it got important inspiration from the Swiss, Austrian, Swedish, and, defend, uh, and, and uh, Finnish uh, defense strategies, and also from US and French authors like Stephen Canby or uh, Guy Brousselet, uh, a French army officer. And I'm sorry, maybe I butchered that name. <laughs> my French is not very good. <laughs> um, so, for example, Stephen Canby had already uh, in the mid-1970s argued for defense in depth for NATO. And Brousselet's idea were even more radical. He, he argued, he started with the question, um, what are conventional forces good for in a war uh, with a much larger nuclear armed Warsaw Pact uh, forces. 
Um, the official objective of the French army were first to, to test the enemy's intentions, second to buy time for decisions about de-escalation or escalation, third to defend so fiercely that the potential use of nuclear weapons becomes also credible, and fourth to demonstrate the will uh, to use strategic nuclear weapons by using theater nuclear weapons first. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, and for that, he argued the French arm. Army didn't really need to uh, need to offer a conventional battle. Uh, so, so his his essay where he uh, proposed these ideas was actually called "Essay uh, sur le non bataille," probably also again butchered, <laughs> but uh, you can translate it into "essay about the non battle," oh. um, because he argued that that why offer conventional battle if, if uh, in the end this is about to test the enemy's intention and convince him that you you're going to to go nuclear if he if he co uh, yeah. continues with this attack and so um, his idea was to, to what he proposed was a positional defense a deep area defense uh, consisting of a network of light infantry supported by uh, tank and attack helicopter units um, and the idea was to try to the enemy test his intentions by time for political decision making regarding nuclear escalation but in the end um, as I said uh, earlier uh, here you can see already that it's very much fixated on the strategic nuclear yeah. uh, level um, but um, this uh, network that he proposed um, was of course also the idea was that you don't offer uh, targets to to nuclear weapons, uh, be they tactical or strategic. Um, and um, this idea was then transferred to the German debate by the political scientist uh, Horst Affeld and sparked a whole industry of analysts, military officers, and peace researchers who worked on alternative strategies. And, and here it probably helped that Affeld's cousin was actually Brigadier General uh, in the Bundeswehr uh, who supported his ideas. Yeah. Um, and uh, his, his last command was actually over uh, a Jäger brigade, uh, light infantry brigade. So probably that's also why these ideas were, were uh, for him uh, acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, so this spider in the web defense ideas is, uh, was developed in the 80s by a group called um, SAS, uh, Security, Alter 
study group on alternative uh, security uh, strategies. And um, this was led actually by a German uh, sociologist, Lutz Unterseer, um, who, who did some, um, some studies on the demography, uh, demography of Germany for the Bundeswehr, for the defense ministry in the early 80s. And uh, he came to the conclusion that the traditional um, force posture, force structure of, of the Bundeswehr wasn't sustainable uh, because in the 90s you would, you would have had this uh, demo demographic crisis yeah. because, uh, because of yeah, uh, uh, decreasing birth rates. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, this was actually what got him started thinking about these ideas, and uh, so he took with others this um, idea of a network and, and uh, combined it with, with mobile elements, um, building building also on, on these works by Guy Bossolet, but also JFC Fuller, uh, so this uh, archipelago uh, defense. Um, and the idea was that you have a, have a synergies between the positional mm -hmm. and the mobile elements. Uh, so it was very important for them. And of course, in the 1980s, you have in the background the debate about Euro missiles and um, also the fear that strategies and force postures that uh, build a lot on preemptive strikes, uh, for example, like the uh, Rogers plan, like the deep strike concepts of the time, follow on forces attack, mm -hmm. uh, all these ideas, which are of course uh, also connected to, to the idea of airland battle. Um, these were seen very crit critically because there was a fear that um, in a crisis state they would actually uh, lead to escalation because these uh, critics uh, and, and proponents of alternative defense structures argued that all these targets of, of the um, of the deep strikes uh, needed to to be struck very early on otherwise uh, it would be too late if you if you hit the army the basis of the of the Soviet forces in, in the West uh, Soviet Union too late or the, or the bridges or whatever um, then then it wouldn't work. Yeah. Uh, of course, there were also this criticism that, that in the end the Soviet Union wouldn't attack in, in several echelons, echelons. Yeah. Uh, and so um, they hoped that these, these positional defenses would be more credible. Uh, and at the same time, because they were they proposed uh, fortifications and barrier defenses uh, and, and uh, in, like I said, area defense. They hoped that uh, they wouldn't offer many targets for any tactical yeah. nuclear weapons and so hoped that uh, a war, if it would break out, would stay conventional and might, might be de-escalated early on. Yeah, so I, th I think not only to me, but probably everybody that's listening. As you're talking about this, uh, the thing that kept coming to my mind was, how does this mesh with uh, uh, what was active defense and then what became Maryland battle? How does how does the European, um, these alternative defense structures that you mentioned and these ideas, how do they um, align or misalign with what the U.S. was trying to do 
and guide uh, NATO towards uh, when it when it went from active defense to airland battle. They are of course parallels, and I, I, especially with active defense. And uh, what I found very interesting when I when I read, read the book by uh, Robinson on on Boyd. Um, he has this um, uh, subchapter uh, active defense reconsider where he uh, argues that active defense was uh, much better suited to to NATO because and especially to the needs of the West Germans because um, it uh, focused on forward defense mm -hmm. and it focused on keeping the fight at the border. Yeah. Um, while, which was also one criticism of, of uh, some some military analysts uh, from Germany, uh, like like Lutz and Tazia at that time, with maneuver uh, warfare, you would have the the risk um, or the problem that the fight would take place all over Germany, mm -hmm. and that it would maybe. Like, like he always uh, argued that you would have kind of a revolving door fa uh, effect because the Soviets would, of course, with the operational maneuver groups, yeah. uh, try to, to find the flanks in the rear of, of NATO and NATO forces would try to find their flank. And so it, it would go back and forth and it wouldn't really be forward defense in the end what, what the West Germans wanted overall. Yeah. Um, and so the specter that even a conventional war would uh, destroy Germany during the fight, even if the, the war would be successful from NATO's point of view, uh, Germany would be destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so Robinson also argues that in that sense, active defense was better suited to, to forward defense and, and that um, General Dupuy uh, I'm not sure if I butchered the name. I, I get it wrong every time too. Depu, Depuy, oh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> One of those. Uh, that he was very much aware of that, and that he uh, developed active defense the way he did because he wanted to make sure to um, keep in line with his political requirement mm -hmm. uh, of West Germany, and you. On the other side, one could argue that that uh, airland battle did not wasn't in line with this political requirement of forward defense um, but also when if one looks at the debate in west germany at the time it kind of is also at times very confused because i mean airland battle just got uh, introduced in the early 1980s so the information uh, that also experts had was sometimes confusing or they presented it maybe a little bit confusingly. Yeah. Sometimes it was, for, for example, argued that airline battle was just a general concept for all uh, American forces, but not for NATO forces. It wouldn't be used in Europe. Um, and of course, today we know that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting ready to, to close out here. So my last uh, question for you, on this topic is how did the the maneuver based approach end up winning out in this debate between different uh, different schools of thought? I'm I'm not sure if maneuver oriented strategy really won the debate in the 1980s. I would argue it it started from a very strong position from the center of the lines, of course, mm -hmm. from the United States. But during the 1980s, especially in the public debate in West Germany and in German uh, politics, airland battle doctrine and maneuver warfare remained 
controversial. And, and one has to remember, again, here's a central position of West Germany yeah. uh, in and for NATO as the uh, front state. Uh, that's why alternative strategies, which were supposed to, to make uh, preemptive strikes like in, in, in FOFA or deep strike unnecessary and to prevent maneuver warfare all, all over Germany, at least it was the objective, mm -hmm. if it would have <laughs> achieved this objective is of course another question. Uh, but but they, these concepts, these alternative concepts really remained uh, popular and got more and more uh, interest from from as first the social democrats later also tentatively slowly from the christian christian democrats mm -hmm. um because there, there was um more and more let's say there was confusion and and irritation with with uh, how doctrine and also nuclear strategy developed in the in the united states and um also for example, there was this Wintex exercise, a uh, 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 staff exercise in, in 89, where the German Chancellor Helmut Kohl actually withdrew under protest the German representative of, of himself in, in the exercise because um, the um, because theater nuclear forces weren't used in the political demonstrative way the German government thought was agreed in the alliance, but there was a second strike after the first uh, demonstrative strike proposed, and, and Kohl is very much irritated. And so, also then with the with the intermediate nuclear forces treaty. Um, there was much irritation in German politics and um, and also there was, a, for example, semi-official government report uh, about um, called uh, um, discriminate deterrence, which was looked much more like nuclear war fighting, uh, and, and also proposed deep conventional thrusts into into uh, the Warsaw Pact states, which uh, got also uh, which which led to much confusion in. in under the Christian Democrats and um, even really big supporters of NATO, uh, um, like like the defense um, minister, and um, so what I would argue that uh, there was more and more reason or more and more encouragement uh, to to look at these alternative strategies. But then, of course, the wall came down, the Berlin Wall came down. And the Soviet Union dissolved, the Cold War ended, armies in Europe shrunk considerably, and there was apparently no need to discuss the advantages and disadvantages of positional and array defenses or maneuver warfare anymore, at least not in public or in expert circles. And so the debate ended. And so in the end, maneuver warfare was what, what was established and the alternatives weren't the debate and yeah i think that that's a, that's a that's actually a really interesting way to wrap uh to wrap up today's episode but also just to wrap up your point there the uh <laughs> the berlin wall fell and maneuver was the last thing left standing essentially um, because it was the only thing that was established at that point and then i think uh it, you're on the mark with uh the debate and the discussion and the nuance of the debate and the discussion 
um, having probably fallen with the wall as well, where there's a lot of uh, nuance that should be tied to this discussion. And I think you've integrated a lot of that uh, in, into this already this morning uh, or this evening, I guess, for you. But those things are important aspects that uh, that are often overlooked when we talk about the different ways of war fighting today and what works best where. And I think the critical thing that, again, when we talk about working with allies and partners is, you know, the, the way I liked what you the phrase you used, alternative defense structures, meaning different ways of operating, right? Different ways of fighting, big picture. Those aren't just based off, they shouldn't just be based off what one person, one person being, you know, one state, uh, how one state wants to fight, but they have to take into consideration that um, the terrain on which they're engaged and their partner's political political interests. And so, like you said, you know, West Germany didn't, didn't wasn't keen on a high nuclear threshold approach uh, that that invited uh, warfare, you know, on its territory. They wanted they viewed that as not limited, but something extremely uh, not total, clearly, but you know, on the further end of the uh, unlimited scale there. And so I think that that's just a, you know, this podcast again is about uh, military thought in large part, and I think that that's something critical that. Uh, we need to think about as we step away from here is the context matters. And I know that's something that I've said repeatedly on the show, but I think you really brought that uh, to the fore in this discussion. So with that, is there anything else that you didn't say that you wanted to say that you wanted to mention during our conversation that you haven't said? Maybe maybe just a caveat at the yeah. end. Uh, maybe I should have said that at the beginning. I, I come from the field of nuclear history. And the, the way I see it, the discussion about nuclear strategy and nuclear deterrence and conventional strategy um, is very often, uh, these are two different fields and there are not many people working on both. Uh, at least that's, that's how I, uh, until now, um, have experienced it. And uh, so... I started working on these also conventional deterrence and defense questions because that's where my sources uh, and my topic uh, of my PhD left me. I would just say uh, um, I'm coming, like I said, from the field of nuclear history, so I still have a lot of t- to learn, and uh, um, so there are some limits to my expertise, But and, and I, I look at this very much from the nuclear point of view. Uh, but um, I just hope that, that I, I was able to, to uh, blur the boundaries between nuclear and conventional. Yeah, no, I think that's <laughs> terrific. I think that's, a, that's a, good, a good point to bring up, too. You know, there's not, there's not a lot of good overlap between, you know, if you're drawing that Venn diagram between nuclear uh, defense theory and then conventional defense theory, they're usually, like you said, standalone. And they, we, we don't have many people that, ha- that are that, that sweet spot in the middle there. So, all right, Lucas. I appreciate it. I, uh, I know it's getting late there in Germany, so I'm going to let you get back to your evening. And I appreciate your time, and thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.